0: One thing you cannot say is that God is short-tempered or in the In our reading this morning from Paul's letter to the Romans, the apostle continues to wrestle with the very personal and pressing question, what about the Jews? Paul, the super Jew, who became the super evangelist for Jesus, wishes that his brothers and his sisters, his fellow Israelites, were also following Jesus. Some are, of course. In fact, many are. At this point in church history, the church was probably still majority Jewish. But Paul wonders about the rest of the Jews, about the ones who have rejected Jesus, just as he did not so long ago. And he wonders about Jerusalem and about the official religious bureaucracy at the temple. Why are they not following Jesus? Jesus, who is the fulfillment of Jewish prophecy. Jesus, who is the Jewish Messiah. Paul admits that the Jews, as a nation, have a special place in God's plan God has given them the law and the prophets. God has given them the temple worship and the Messiah. Why are so many of these religiously privileged people left out in the cold? Why are so many of these people who have had every advantage of religious training and deep religious tradition worse off than a bunch of pagans who only converted the day before yesterday? It's a very personal question for Paul. Because he's talking about his own people and his own family. In part, Paul's answer to this question is found in Isaiah 65, which Paul quotes. We hear God say about his chosen people, I spread out my hands all the day to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good, following their own devices, a people who provoke me to my face continually. You can't say that God is short-tempered or impatient. You can't say that God gave his people only one chance and then blew his cool when they weren't immediately on board. In fact, God comes after his people again and again and again with a long-suffering patience that puts all of us To shame by comparison. The theme of God's long-suffering persistence with his stubborn and stiff-necked people is a constant drumbeat throughout the Old Testament. And because God's nature and human nature have not changed since Old Testament times, we see this exact same theme working itself out in the New Testament. In the six verses I read for you from Paul's letter to the Romans this morning, Paul is trying to explain why so many of God's covenant people find themselves outside of Christ. Paul is personally interested in this topic because he's talking about his own people. He's talking about someone else too. However, can you guess? He's talking about us. So listen up. Two big questions we face this morning. First, how can the child of spiritual privilege become a spiritual outsider? How can one who's been born into a covenant community with all of its benefits become like an infidel or a pagan? That's one question we need to answer this morning. The second question is this. How can we prevent that from happening in our lives, in our families, and in our church? That's our job to answer those questions this morning. To answer those questions, however, I'm going to first walk very carefully through uh, the passage from the book of Romans. I'm going to spend about 10 minutes doing that, a kind of line-by-line line exegesis of Romans 10:16 through 21 we're going to look at what this passage meant in its historical context, uh, the context that Paul writes it into, and then we're going to ask the question, what does this mean for us today? So our passage has three parts which answers three questions. The first question is, did the non-Christian Israelites not hear or not understand the gospel? The second question is, what has God done about the non-Christian Israelites? And the third question is, what does this reveal about God's character and about human character? So question number one, did the non-Christian Israelites not hear or not understand the gospel? Last week in Romans 10, 14 and 15, we read these words, How then will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in Him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they're sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. These words are burned into the heart of anyone who has a burden for the lost. These words are the marching orders for any Christian and any church that has a passion for evangelism and for mission. If we believe the Bible when it says that the gospel is the power of God for salvation for anyone who believes, then the first and the last thought in our mind, if we have any love of humanity, is, how can I get the gospel out to other people? Our denomination, the Evangelical Presbyterian Church, has committed itself to church multiplication and church planting here in the United States. And we uh, here at HVPC need to be a part of that kind of intentional growth and birthing of new congregations. But the denomination has also committed itself to an interesting strategy of international missions, which intentionally sends workers to what the EPC calls the hardest places. The hardest places are those regions around the globe where there is no Christian presence at all. Where there are no churches at all. Where there is zero opportunity for people to hear the gospel. And yes, such places still exist in the world, mostly in Muslim areas of the former Soviet Union. And that's where our denomination is sending people. Why? Because how are people without the gospel to be saved if they haven't heard the gospel? And how are those who hear the, go- how are those people to hear the gospel if no one goes to preach to them? And how can anyone preach to them unless someone sends them? On judgment day, I don't know what kind of accommodation Almighty God will make for people who have never heard the gospel. For people who have never heard the name of Jesus. I don't know. But I do know that God is just and that God is fair. And there are hints in scripture that those people will be judged according to what they did know rather than according to what they didn't know. And Paul argues in Romans 1:18 through 18-20 that even people without the law, even people without the prophets and without the gospel are still without excuse. Because from the simple light of reason, they have clearly understood God's invisible qualities, but have suppressed the truth with their wickedness. On Judgment Day, I don't know what kind of accommodation Almighty God will make for people who have never heard the gospel, who have never heard the name of Jesus. And I caution us against spending more time speculating about what Scripture doesn't say than what it does say. And what it does say, is that the Israelites had heard the gospel. In verse 18, Paul writes, But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have. And then Paul, using the style of a rabbinical midrash, both quotes Isaiah and the Psalms to support his contention. But the Israelites have not obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord who has believed what he has heard from us. Here Paul is quoting a messianic prophecy uh, from Isaiah 53 where the prophet complains to God that he's preaching to the Israelites but they're not listening. Paul obviously knows how Isaiah felt. He's been preaching hard. He's preaching a life-saving message. And they're just staring back at him like a bunch of cows standing in a pasture. Paul also quotes Psalm 19, a beautiful and familiar psalm, which begins, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the works of his hand. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they display knowledge. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Their voice has gone out to all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. With this quotation... Paul goes back to the point that he makes in Romans 1, 18-20, namely that even people who don't have the law or the prophets or the gospel still have enough evidence from the creation itself to give glory to God. And in Romans ten nineteen, Paul follows up his quotation of Psalm 19 with the rhetorical question, one that parallels the rhetorical question he asked in verse 18. But I ask, did Israel not understand? The answer to that question, of course, is yes, they they understood. So the non-Christian Israelites are doubly without excuse. They have seen the wonders of nature which should turn their minds to God, and they have also heard the gospel which they still reject. Though they are God's chosen people, though they are the people of the covenants who have received all kinds of special religious and spiritual blessings because of God's choice of them, they still have rejected God's saving offer of a righteousness that is beyond the law, and as a result, they are not in a state of grace So the answer to question number one, is: did the non-Christian Israelites not hear or understand the gospel? The answer to that question is, yes, they heard loud and clear. The second question Paul answers in this passage is, what has God done about the non-Christian Israelite? God, of course, does a lot of things. But in verses 19 and 20, Paul tells us that God uses jealousy to motivate the stubborn Israelites. The idea seems to be this. If you, Israel, my chosen people, won't love me the way you should, then I'll place my affection on another nation, a nation that you despise, so that in your jealousy you'll return to me. Again, using the style of a rabbinical midrash, the kind of an argument that his Jewish brothers and sisters would have understood well, Paul quotes Deuteronomy and Isaiah, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Paul could have quoted a whole bunch of Old Testament passages to make this same point, God using jealousy to recover his people is a theme that appears over and over again. And then quoting Isaiah, Paul shows how the words of the prophets apply to the situation in the first century church where many Gentiles, former pagans, are coming into the church and are beginning to overwhelm the Jewish Christians who once ran the whole show. Paul writes, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. A reference to the Gentiles. The Messiah belongs to the Jews. And the Jews for long centuries awaited his arrival. But when some of the Jews rejected Jesus, then the Messiah was revealed to a bunch of ignorant pagan Gentiles who never knew anything about the Messiah and were never interested in him before. The answer to question number two, what has God done about the non-Christian Israelites is that God is provoking them to jealousy. And now question number three. So the third question that Paul is answering in this section that we read. Question number three, what does all this reveal about God's character and about our character, human character? Paul wraps up his Midrash, with a quotation from Isaiah 53.1, which has echoes of the Isaiah 65 passage, which we read earlier in the service. Paul writes, But of Israel, he says, God says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. That's what God has been doing all along, holding out his hands to us. And all the while, we humans have been disobedient and contrary. Now I guess that even those of us who are disobedient and contrary don't like to be called that. And so maybe this hurts our feelings or gets our defenses up. But there is a comfort in this sentence and I want you to catch this. Because the important part of the sentence is not what it says about the disobedient humans, but what it says about us, or what it, but what it says about God. And the answer to question number three, what does it reveal about God's character and about our character is we are stubborn and disobedient, but God is equally stubborn in loving his people. Now, I want to take just a moment to make a side observation here. Last Sunday in the Revelation Bible study... By the way, some of you still are not involved in a small group Bible study, which is a scandal. Because the small group Bible studies around here are terrific. And you need to be engaged in at least one. Um, I teach in the uh, in a Bible study that meets in the lounge on the Sunday evenings. The first and the third Sundays of the month. And it's called the Revelation Bible study. Anyway, we were meeting last last Sunday... And uh, the discussion arose regarding certain distressing episodes uh, in the Bible where people do really horrible things. Things like the rape of Tamar and the sacrifice of uh, Japheth's daughter or the expulsion of Hagar and Ishmael. Some people read these stories and think, how awful, what a wretched bunch of people. Why in the world would I want to be like them? How can the Bible be the good book if it's filled with so many bad people? You see the problem? So let me offer you, free of charge, Dan Morrison's rule number one for effective biblical interpretation. You ready? It's very simple. The hero of the Bible is God... It's not the people. Which means that we're supposed to imitate God, but not the people who show up in the Bible stories. God says, "Be holy for I am holy." The God doesn't say, "Be like Abraham or be like Japheth or be like David." Even the towering figures in the Bible, people like Noah and Abraham and Moses were deeply sinful men. One was a drunk, one was a liar, one was a murderer. Don't follow them. Follow God. In Romans 10.21 we see the contrast between human character and divine character laid out as clear as day. But of Israel he says all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. That means that we don't imitate the Israelites and become disobedient and contrary but rather we can imitate God and hold out our hands in faithfulness all day long if we want that would be okay part of the trustworthiness of scripture is that it doesn't present our ancestors in the faith as perfect plaster saints We see them in all of their vile corruption and sinfulness. That's why they needed a Savior. And that's why we need a Savior. Because guess what? We're no better than those scumbags in the Bible. Okay, Dan Morrison's rule number one for effective biblical interpretation. The hero of the Bible is God. It's not the people. All right, now back to the sermon. So, thus far, Paul has made it abundantly clear that the Israelites have a special place in God's plan of salvation for the world. They have the law and the prophets, and they have the temple worship, and they have the Messiah. But there remains this problem that many Israelites are not following Jesus. And in Romans 10, 16-21, Paul clarifies three things. First, he tells us that the Jews who rejected Christ did not do so out of ignorance. They heard the message just fine. Second, he tells us that God's response to the rejection of the Jews was to provoke them to jealousy by inviting filthy Gentiles into the family. And third, Paul reiterates the fundamental character of humans and the fundamental character of God. Humans are disobedient and contrary, and God is long-suffering and loving. Okay, that's what Paul has accomplished in Romans 10, 16-21. That's what this passage meant in its historical context when it was first delivered. But this morning, we will take this a step further, and we will pull this passage out of the first century, Roman Empire, and ask, what does this passage mean for us here in Huntington Valley in 2018? All right, so this part's about us. And I see three applications to this passage. One application has to do with us individually. One has to do with our children. And one has to do with the church as a corporate entity, as a whole. So let's talk about the application that applies to us individually. Being born into a Christian family does not make me a Christian. A lot of us here at HVPC are like the Jews of Paul's day. Like the Jews, we are children of the covenant We were born into Christian families. My parents were missionaries. We were raised in the church. We have had every advantage of hearing God's word proclaimed since we were children. It's a great privilege. To be born into a Christian family. I wish every child were born into a Christian family. That Christian heritage gives us special privileges. It gives us a boost up in life. It gives us wonderful advantages. But hear me clearly. Being born in a Christian family does not make me a Christian. As Paul says in Romans 9, 8. It is not the children by physical descent... Who are God's children? But it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. And remember John the Baptizer, who preached repentance there out in the wilderness and asked Jews to get dunked into the dirty water of the Jordan River as a sign of their conversion to Judaism. Yes, that's what Paul, that John was doing. He was asking Jews to become Jews. He says in Matthew 3-9, do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that from these stones God is able to raise up children of Abraham. That's John speaking To the Jews who are so proud of their religious heritage, who are aware of their religious knowledge and religious advantage, who are conscious of their religious privileges, how much more blessed it is to be a child of the covenant than to be a pagan or an infidel. But John says that none of that matters if we are not repenting of our sins and our lives are not devoted to righteousness. Paul and John both are warning the Jews of their day But the equivalent in our time are regular folks like us, good old Presbyterians, raised in the church, but dead in our spirits and godless in our habits of living. If someone were to check our, if someone were to examine our checkbooks, If someone were to review our browser histories, if someone were to listen in on all of our conversations, would they conclude that we are redeemed followers of Christ? Or would we just be people raised in the church who look no different than the world? We need to ask that question seriously. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 13.5, Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Now Paul's writing this to church people, to church Members, he's not writing to pagans or to outsiders out in the world. Paul is talking to us and he's saying, examine yourself. We need to test ourselves. We need to see whether or not we are in the faith. Does an honest evaluation of our lives point to the conclusion that we are redeemed, born again, children of God? Or does it suggest that we need to get right with God? Being born in a Christian family doesn't make you a Christian. That's the application for us individually. And now there's an application also for our children, for the children of HVPC. Children, that is, who are no longer children, but who are now individuals who've reached the age of accountability. Where do they stand with God? And... What responsibility as parents and as a church do we have toward them? Are our children, our adult children, in church this morning? Or are they out in the world someplace? If I have a heart for evangelism and mission... If I'm concerned about people in my neighborhood and people around the world, how much more should I be concerned about my own flesh and blood? For every ounce of energy that we give to Foreign Mission, we should pour a ton of energy into our own families. And it's not enough, by the way, to drop our kids off at Sunday school to let the professionals teach our kids the gospel, we cannot subcontract out our most important responsibility as parents. For every hour our children spend with church staff, they spend hundreds of hours with us, with their parents, listening to our words, watching our attitudes, observing our lives and our character. They say charity begins at home. Maybe we should also say evangelism begins at home. That's the application for our children. And third, there is an application for our church as a whole, as an organism, as an institution. The Jews who gave Jesus the hardest time were the ones who were most invested in the religious bureaucracy of their time. It was the chief priest and the scribes and the rulers in the temple who hated Jesus most. Because Jesus, with his life-changing message, disrupted the good thing they had going. They liked to be in charge. They had it all figured out. They wanted to preserve their traditions and their authority and their privileges. And then Jesus comes in like a cyclone, threatening to disrupt everything. And so they did the sensible thing. They killed him. The institutional church operates... Exactly the same way. In every period of church history for the past 2,000 years, God's mission has been accomplished not by the stolid establishment church in all of its magisterial and corporate grandeur. God's mission has been accomplished by the ragged edge, in the messy mix, in the creative ferment where Christians are more committed to building God's kingdom than to preserving their own kingdom. Where Christians are listening more to the Holy Spirit speaking through the Holy Scriptures than to worldly wisdom and cautious counsel. It has always been the reckless renegades, not the cautious bureaucrats who have made a difference in the history of the church. In the 13 years that I have been with you, there have been many victories and many things done right in this congregation. And almost all of them were accomplished because we pushed forward trusting God even though we were a little afraid. And also in those same 13 years, there have been some failures and missed opportunities. And almost all of them were the result of caution and fear winning the day over faith and obedience. When we have succeeded as a church... It's been when we took God at his word and moved forward, even though eyes of worldly wisdom didn't see the way forward, even though the timid flesh was shaking in its boots. And when we've failed as a church, it's been when we've allowed fear to rule and have turned our eyes to the past rather than to the future. There's nothing new about this. This is the way it's always been. In the church and the people of God, this is the way of faith in God that it's always worked throughout all time. Jesus Messiah shows up on the scene in Jerusalem and the temple leaders become cautious and conservative. They don't want to rock the boat. They don't want to upset their relations with the pagan rulers. They don't want to lose their prerogatives and privileges. And so they look to the past. They look to their own kingdom rather than to the future, to the kingdom that God is building. And because of their fear, they missed out. They missed the boat. They became the people who were almost important. As a church, as an institution... We have to realize that our continuous, continual flourishing depends not upon our worldly wisdom, but upon our trust in God to do week in and week out what he calls us to do, and to do that without fear or without hesitation. In this passage that we read this morning from Romans chapter 10, Paul is wrestling with the place of his beloved Jews in God's larger plans of salvation. But his word speaks to us as well. We're not Christians just because we were born into a Christian family. We're Christians if we repent of our sins and turn to Christ and allow him to be the Lord of our lives. We need to allow our evangelism to start at home in our extended families, as we share the life-saving gospel with the people who are most important to us. And as a church, as an institution, we need to be fearless because we are wed to a God who is matchless in power, in glory, in beauty, and in wisdom. May we know Christ as Lord and Savior. May our children be saved as well. And may this congregation be reckless and fearless as we follow God as He leads us forward. Amen. Let us pray. Father God, we pray that You would seal to our hearts the truths of Your Word. We pray that By the power of your Holy Spirit, you would apply this general message to us individually. And Lord, I pray that you wouldn't only move our intellects, but that you would also move our wills and that you would shape our hearts. Lord, outside of you, we are lost. And outside of your word, we are blind and deaf. And so we pray that your word would speak to us clearly this day. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Our middle hymn.